For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good evening, everyone. It's great to be here with, with you. Um, I bring you greetings from the eastern side of the Piedmont and all of those churches in Greensboro and High Point. Uh, anyway, it's great to be over here. Uh, we've worshipped among you uh, probably two or three times and always have really enjoyed uh, being with you and uh, worshipping with you. Uh, I'm excited to bring the Word of God to you tonight. Uh, and... Uh, grateful for the opportunity. And uh, let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. It's powerful. It's sharp. It's penetrating. It's holy. It's convicting. And it's filled from one end to the other with your grace and mercy. To your people. And so, Father, I pray that every aspect of your word will be trained upon our hearts tonight, that our hearts may blossom with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and that our lives may reflect it in everything that we do, in every minute of every day. For we pray this, Lord Jesus, in your glorious name. Amen. So you'll notice in uh, 
verse 1 of chapter 10, he kind of restates a thesis that has gone throughout the entire book of Hebrews. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the true good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So what his point has been throughout the entire book of Hebrews is that the Old Testament had uh, all of these great and glorious things, but compared to Jesus Christ, they're like a shadow. They're like uh, a very dim aspect of what God's promise was going to be revealed as. So um, I ran across a really good illustration of that, I think, a couple of years ago. If you want to look at your outline that's in your bulletin there. Um, The London Telegraph, a few years ago, had run an article telling about a rare new art find. Uh, Due to the recent development of infrared technologies, they've been able to uncover trace amounts of charcoal or black chalk left on sketch paper from the Italian masters of the 1500s. Drawing materials, as you can imagine, were incredibly expensive, especially paper. And so artists would often take stale bread, which was the original sort of pink bevel eraser, I guess, and they would erase earlier, mark, uh, earlier chalk drawings, and they would remake them over that paper, and they would re- reuse the paper. So the British Museum, using this technique, had uncovered several original sketches of some of the great masters, Da Vinci, Raphael, Mantegna, and Michelangelo. One particular sketch of Michelangelo's they discovered shows the outline of a man holding a child. It was his first sketch of the famous Bruges Madonna. They know that because it's covered over by his final sketch of the statue. And under the careful scrutiny of the modern technology, they found this shadowy sketch which became an incredible masterpiece of art. Now, if you look at it on the one level, the rough outline, you can't tell how in the world this became the immaculately carved marble statue. And yet, on the other hand, from this rude start, you can see where Michelangelo is headed. And that's exactly the point that the Hebrew writer is making here in chapter 10. The author makes his point almost using exactly the same words. He claims that the Old Testament sacrifices were a pale shadow of what would be the final image. And he uses those two words, pale shadow and image, to strike his point home. How the Old Testament sacrifices, as bloody as they were, as graphic as they were, as uh, visceral as they were, still they were an imperfect reflection of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And yet, although they were only a pale shadow, they demonstrate where God was planning to go all along. But here's the problem. This is the problem that we find the Hebrew writer addressing all the time, all throughout his book, is that even though this is true, even though Christ is the image compared to the pale shadow, 
the early Christians wanted to go back to the pale shadow. So, uh, Kent Hughes kind of makes this analogy, and I'll kind of fit my own life into it, but uh, Suzanne and I dated uh, for four years during college. Uh, She in the uh, outer reaches of Michigan and me in uh, almost at the end of the world. You know, if you drive out to Idaho, there's a little place where you can see where the world sort of drops off and you're at the end. And um, so every summer we would go back and so we would write letters back and forth and then we got engaged and I always carried around in my wallet this picture, her senior uh, picture from high school. And so people said, hey, you got a girlfriend? I'd say, yeah. Look at here. He said, dude, that's not a girlfriend. That's like a baby. What are you doing, robbing the cradle? And um, <clears throat> so, but after we got married and I experienced the real thing, what would be, this would be like is if I went back to that picture after being married and say, I don't want the real thing. I just want to kiss on this picture. That's what the Hebrew writer is trying to desperately communicate to the early Christians. That going back is like going back to nothing. So what the Hebrew writer is telling us is he's telling us, do not go back to the shadow. God wants you to come out of the shadow of uncertainty and come in to know complete, the complete and fully formed forgiveness that you can experience in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is what our passage has been telling us repeatedly over and over and over again. So the first thing I want you to see here is that in verses 1 through 4, the writer tells us that there is no need to remain in the shadow. He says it throughout the passage four or five times that the sacrifice wasn't enough. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices there's only a reminder of sin every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away Sin. Verse 5, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, I, you have taken no pleasure. And it goes on throughout the passage. He reminds us time and time again, there is no need to remain in the shadow. So what this is telling us, blatantly, constantly reminding us, you cannot fix your own sin. Let me say that again, because we do it over and over again. You cannot fix your own sin. Now this is summer, it's the time of gas grills. And think about, after a good full summer of grilling out, you've got all that black gunk at the bottom of your grill and you go and try to take the kitchen rag and you try to clean it just with that by yourself. What's gonna happen? You're just going to make a bigger mess. And not only is the mess going to be all over the grill and all over the patio, and your wife is going to be mad at you, but it's going to be all over you. And you're not even going to be able to get it off. You've actually made a bigger mess by trying to clean it up with that rag. And that's 
what the Hebrew writer is telling you, you cannot fix it yourself. There are a lot of ways in which we try to fix our own sin. Often we make excuses for our own sin. Well, I didn't really mean it. You know, actually I'm really a good person. I don't normally talk that way. Or, well, you know, the circumstances that I was in were really difficult, you know, and so it just kind of came out. Normally I'm not that way. We make all kinds of excuses for our sin. And I guarantee you excuses do not clean up the mess that sin makes. Often we try to dodge sin or point, you know, get people misdirected. We tell people, you know, say, well, you know, it was so-and-so's fault. It really wasn't my fault. Or I wouldn't have done this except for so-and-so did this. And that won't clean up sin. Often what happens in, in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, is that In the aftermath of it, we feel terrible, we feel guilty, we lay in that for a little bit, and we think that if we chastise ourselves enough inside, you know, the little uh, monkey chatter inside your head, that if we yell at ourselves enough inside our head, that that will be enough. And so we yell at ourselves, we tell ourselves, oh, I shouldn't have done that, oh, I can't believe I did that, oh, man, what's wrong with me, oh. And we think if we do that enough, that that can clean up our sin. And the Hebrew writer says that that's not enough to clean up your sin. It won't do it. And then, sometimes we think, in the aftermath of that, that if we just promise ourselves, this time it's going to be different, this time I'm going to change, this time I'm not going to fall. And the Hebrew writer is saying... You cannot fix your own sin. You cannot do it. The early Christians were tempted to go back because the sacrifice felt more visceral, more hands-on. It felt more like somehow if I touch it, if I do it, if I fix it, then somehow that will make it work. And that's why we do all these things, because we're, we have this illusion in our head that somehow if we get down and get dirty and get gritty by trying to patch up our sin, we can do it. And the Hebrew writer says that is a shadow of what God intended. It's not the real thing. There is no need to remain in the shadow. Now, if you've grown up in a culture of shame and guilt, which many of us have, um, that's, a, that's a hard one to kick. Um, <clears throat> the Hebrew writer is telling us that there's no need to remain afraid and stay in the shadow of shame and guilt. You can come out and experience the real thing. You can stay in the shadow if you want. You can sort of be in the shadow of sadness and repentance. You can always be a grumpy Christian and and sort of make it look like you're sorry for all of the things that you do. But the Hebrew writer is inviting you to not stay in the shadow, but to come into the light of joy and glory in Jesus. 
So then, as you, as you look down through uh, the passage here in Hebrews chapter 10, um, the question is going to arise, well, what about holiness? What about obedience? Are we not supposed to be obedient to all of those things that God gave to us in the Old Testament? In verse 5, he says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So the writer goes on to explain to us that this word, which came through uh, King David, was actually the very words of God speaking to us today. That sacrifices cannot do it anymore, but the body that Christ was given is the thing that has ushered us into forgiveness and also into holiness and obedience. So this leads us kind of to the second point of this passage, which which I've put there on your outline that Jesus it shows us that Jesus is now your true path to holiness now the last place you would expect to find something saying that the law is just a shadow is in the Old Testament right because the Old Testament is this amazing tapestry of stories that leads us around the element of sacrifice and what God had given to them in the Old Testament. But you would never expect them there to say, well, this is only, you know, this is only uh, uh, black and white. The color is coming. This is only just a shadow. But he shows right here from from the book of Psalms and what David has to say that actually the Old Testament acknowledged that it was a shadow, that the Old Testament itself acknowledged that there was no way to experience pure forgiveness and holiness through the sacrificial system. So in speaking from the Old Testament about the limitations of the sacrificial system, he now states in the positive the unlimited implications of the sacrifice of Jesus. That it's powerful enough to clean our consciences and powerful enough to empower us to live a purposeful, fruitful life. In other words, the sacrifice of Jesus sanctifies us. Well, how does it do that? In the words of Robert Murray McShane, he said it this way, he said, for every one look that you take at your sin, take a thousand looks at Christ. It sounds too good to be true. It sounds like there's like no effort involved in doing it. That, is that all we have to do? But imagine this. <clears throat> when you go to Christ and you accept the sacrifice for your sins and you feel your conscience cleaned, you feel the freedom, you feel the joy, you feel the peace, And you're filled with that relief from the burden of your sin, from the guilt and the shame. And you're filled with joy. And you're united to Christ by faith. 
When you are united to Christ, is he going to take you and do something evil with you? Is he going to take you and use you for something perverse? Or as uh, Rick Downs uh, likes to say, you know, when you repent and you're filled with Christ, go and do what you want to do. Because what you want to do when you're filled with Christ is a pretty good thing. And that's how holiness works, is that when we repent of our sin, when we trust in the sacrifice that Christ has made for us, when we're united to Christ by faith in that, there's something that happens in our soul. We're emptied of our sin. The Holy Spirit comes flooding in. And what we want to do from that point on is a pretty good thing. I remember as a young teenager, when I first remember experiencing this, I had been in a relationship that I knew wasn't good for me. And um, I remember our youth pastor going on this rant about having relationships that were uh, just for your own uh, pleasure, just for your own selfishness. And I remember in my head thinking, you know, I've heard this so many times before. I don't want to listen to this rant again. And then something sort of broke into that crazy selfishness in my head. And there was like this voice that said, you know, you really ought to listen to him. And there was something that broke inside me. There's something that I realized that I'd been living this selfish, self-fulfilling life. And it's not the way I wanted to live anymore. And I remember crying out to Jesus and I remember feeling free of that. And what I remember after that is that I really wanted to do some really cool things for the sake of the kingdom. There was like this energy that came into my life. And that's what the Hebrew writer is trying to tell us. But it's not like a one and done kind of thing, right? This is like a daily thing. That daily we have the opportunity to go to Christ and experience that relief and be energized To live the kind of life that Christ wants us to live. So that leads us to the last point that I want to make for you. And that is, the writer is encouraging us to let the Holy Spirit write on your conscience. Alright, so you notice that he repeats... um, He repeats in verse 12 that after Christ had offered for all time a sacrifice for sin, that he sat down at the right hand of God. So he repeats his teaching on the lordship of Jesus Christ, that now he is the king and lord of all things. He restates his theme of sanctification. Verse 14, for a single, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And he introduces us to life in the Holy Spirit. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after the saying, This is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and will write them on their minds. And then he adds, And I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin.
So what happens is, uh, I like to demonstrate this from uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what that says is that Jesus had a record, a perfect and pure record. Okay, Not only did he have a perfect and pure record, but Jesus also had his heavenly father's perfect approval. Okay, so how many of you have had your father's perfect approval? (laughs) Okay, so now I'm a pastor, right? I went right out of uh, high school into Bible school and then on to seminary. I'm a pastor. And I still didn't have my father's perfect approval. Um, And yet Jesus, twice God the Father, said audibly about him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus had a perfect record. Now this is my record. Okay, so I didn't have my father's perfect approval. Um, There was that time when I was about 11 years old that I got caught by the police for shooting bullfrogs in the city limits. And so I got like three citations. I wasn't old enough to shoot a gun. I wasn't supposed to be shooting bullfrogs, which were a game fish. You're supposed to catch them with a hook. And we were shooting within the city limits. So all of those things got written down on my permanent record, right? And there's all of the, you know, traffic tickets I got. There's all of those things that I got cited for in college. All of those things go on my record. But that's not all that's on my record. On my record before God, there are also all of the things that I thought in my heart, but I didn't have the guts to do, even though I wanted to do them. There are all those times that I said things in my head against people, shaming people, thinking uh, evil thoughts about people. All of those things are also written on my permanent record. And what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says is that Jesus on the cross took my record and he died. And he gave me his perfect, pure, and clean record before God. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is trying to drill into our heads. That Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice for us. He has purchased for us perfect and pure forgiveness. He has given to us his righteousness as a gift. And we stand before God perfect and pure and clean not because we are but because Jesus has given us his purity as a gift and when we receive that what happens is all of our idols begin to fall away all of those things that we trusted in we begin to say no to and what happens is when you say no to an idol in your heart there's an emptiness that comes so if In my heart, I have an idol about new things. So I just got a new car. And the first thing that happened with my new car is it got a a pebble uh, chip in the windshield. And all of a sudden, it's like, what's the point of getting a new car if it gets scratched or dented like in the first week? I mean, seriously. And what happens is my idol just got blocked. 
My idol just got exposed for what it is. It's not perfect enough. It's not pure enough. It's not hardy enough. It can't endure long enough to keep my soul at rest. And an emptiness comes into my soul. But you know what that emptiness is? The Hebrew writer is telling us that that emptiness is a hunger for Jesus. That at that moment you can go to Jesus and say, Jesus, fill me with your righteousness. Jesus, fill me with your forgiveness. Jesus, fill me with yourself. And when that happens in our life, suddenly the Holy Spirit comes rushing into that empty space and fills us and changes us. That's what the Hebrew writer is trying to describe for us. So what that means is, is that we now begin to put away all of our old motivations in life. Okay, so uh, there are things that we use to motivate us uh, that didn't really work well. I mean, they worked well for the moment, but in the long run, they were destructive for us. So, for example, I like to motivate myself through guilt, sometimes through anger. Um, I used to work in a mailroom, um, packing boxes, and right about uh, 6 o'clock, all the secretaries would bring all the mail that was supposed to go out, the boxes that were supposed to go out all over the world, and so we'd just get slammed for the next hour. And uh, this was during seminary, and so a friend of mine who was in seminary was helping me, and my friend would sit there and read his theology book instead of helping me. And what I would do is I would use that to motivate myself to get angry. Because then I had all this energy. You know, that anger would produce energy. I could get those boxes uh, slammed together and out in the mail quickly. But then when I was all done, all of a sudden I'm empty. And not only am I empty, but I'm filled with guilt and shame. And what this passage is telling us is that Jesus offers us a new energy, a different motivation in order to do the work of life around us. That we repent on the front end and the Holy Spirit comes and fills us. And sometimes he gives us courage to say to the guy who's sitting there reading his book, hey buddy, come help. We're getting paid to read, not to read theology right now, we're, we're getting paid to work for this company. And so that's, those are the kinds of things that begin to work in our life. We don't have to live with our consciences hardened by trying to keep other people's rules or even by trying to keep our own rules. What do we do? We now are free to live in Christ and let him tell us what to do. And we all know that he will take us one baby step at a time through the Christian life and that he will keep at it. I notice that many of you are younger. You'll discover, as you probably have already discovered in a little way, that life changes. There are seasons to life. And what happens when a season to life changes is that everything gets scrambled and it starts over from scratch. It's not even fair. Hey, don't you remember like elementary school? You know, you go to first grade, all the second graders and third graders beat up on you, and you know, you sort of scramble your way until you're in third grade. And you get on the top of the heap, you know, and you're the, you're the person, you know, you're the cool one, you know, you're the pretty one, you're the strong one. And then what happens in the fourth grade? You get kicked to the bottom and you have to start all over again. And then you scramble your way up to the top in the sixth grade and you get kicked down in middle school and you have to start all over again. And then what happens? 
You get into high school and it starts all over again, even worse, and then college, and then life, and then it takes like 40 years to get back to the top of the heap, right? <laughs> and what I'm saying is, is that life changes like this constantly. But Christ and his sacrifice for us never changes. It's not a shadow. It's a solid image. It's a solid person who has given to you his life in exchange for yours. So, I think my ultimate application is what do I do with this? Well, you practice it daily. But the ultimate application of this is go and tell someone. (laughs) Think of the people around you and what they struggle with on a daily basis. They struggle with guilt and shame and brokenness, and they need to hear about a Savior who is not a shadow, but who is solid and beautiful and is there for them. Let's pray. Father, I just want to ask that you take uh, your words and make them the word and the cry of our heart. I pray that you will draw our hearts into the beauty of Jesus. May he be our strength and our stay. May he be the shelter for our broken and sad hearts. May he be our joy. May he be our glorious dress. For we know, Father, that Jesus is not the shadow, but he is the real thing. And so I pray, may our hearts be satisfied in Jesus alone. For I pray this, Lord Jesus, in your glorious name. Amen.